Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. School has officially started, so I guess this is really some old school dorm room history. But speaking of that, remember to check out dormroomhistory.com to learn more about this episode or past episodes or to ask questions or to donate. But nevertheless, last week, the Qi State made some serious gains. They did. But it was again the Qin State that showed their true strength. Winning the Battle of Yitre against the Han and the Wei, the Qin State had finally made a strong and aggressive move into central China. And in 288 BC, the kings of the Qi and the Qin declared themselves as emperors. Now in Chinese, the title is Di. Remember, like Huang Di from our very first episode. So King Min of Qi and King Zhao of Qin are now, well, emperors of their respective states. Now would that last that long? Not at all. But with their now coordinated renaming, they both agreed to plan on attacking the last big state in between the two of them, the Zhao. So without further ado, The History of China, Episode 20. Nothing can stop the Qin. So I'm going to speed up for the next mm, 60 years or so, just a little bit compared to the last few episodes, as some of the policies and whatnot will begin to become redundant, and diving into all of them in the same detail will just throw us off the true spine of this story. So knowing that, I will add everything I mention here to the website, so if you feel gypped out of learning the whole background of something that I mention, I will provide that information online. Regardless, though, the year is 288 BC, and King Min and King Zhao of the Qi and Qin State, respectively, are now self-titled emperors. And on top of that, the two behemoths of the era have agreed to initiate a coordinated assault on the Zhao state. But one year later, as the troops are being readied and plans are being drawn up in 287 BC, someone appears to throw the whole plan into flux. Su Dai, the younger brother of Su Qin, who we know started the first vertical alliance, went up to King Min of the Qi and was like, what are you doing? A war with the Zhao only helps one state. And it's not you, the Qi. It would only help the Qin. Upon hearing that, King Min quickly scraps the plans to invade the Zhao. But then, on top of that, decides to start the second vertical alliance. The Su family is a big fan of vertical alliances, it seems. And now look, the second vertical alliance is, well... Hardly in the same ballpark as the first vertical alliance or the first horizontal alliance. I mean, it, it's really nothing compared to the last couple alliances. But it was enough to get the Qin to actually back off of invading the Zhao for the time being, and they gave some land back, and even got the new emperor, or king, or whatever you want to call him, to ditch the title of emperor. So the king of the Qin is just the king of the Qin. No emperor of Qin, just king. But just like a flex tape commercial, there's more. And there's going to be 
a lot of damage. Look, as we know, Su Qin, before and, well, after he died, had some of his spies sow disinformation and mistrust in the Qi and Yan's relationship. And many historians believe that Su Dai, who was Su Qin's brother, well, they believe that Su Dai told the Qi to back off of attacking the Zhao at the Yan state's behest. Though, why would he and the Yan state ever do that? Well, here's why. Our old pal Lord Meng Chang is still alive. And he and the Yan state, as well as a couple of the other states, were about to pull the rug from underneath King Min and the entire Qi state. Look, I've said it already, but the Qi were the other superpower of the day. And on a good day, maybe they were the number one superpower. All of the other alliances that had been created had essentially been created to put an end to the Qin. And they all included participation from the Qi. But in 285 BC, the Qi stopped being able to fly under the radar. Look, everyone had been concentrated on the Qin. You know, they are the big power we must stop. And no one really stepped back and said, well, what about the Qi? Well, that was changing. Because in 285 BC, Lord Meng Chang, remember, exiled from the Qi state, got the Wei, the Zhao, the Yan state, and the Qin to form an alliance, and get this, against the Qi. Boom. Now you could see why the Yan would stop the Qi from potentially taking out a big state like the Zhao. Because it would just make them more powerful. And now I can't confirm that. That's just kind of just what it looks like. And a couple ancient historians agree. But nonetheless, King Min had been so out of the loop, the king of the Qi state, and ancient Chinese historians call him just utterly foolish. Literally, their words, not mine. They call him foolish. But he has just been so not on his game that he let himself get played into being the target of a massive alliance that included the Qin. He was told, you know, don't invade the Zhao, that's just going to benefit the Qin. And next thing you know, not doing that, no extra land, no extra power, and now that state and the Qin are on a team against you. But King Min and the Qi state, while they were probably shocked, were not afraid of small states like the Yan. That is until the Yan army showed up that year from the north and began to crush the Qi armies in battle. Uh-oh. And essentially at the same time, the rest of the alliance came in from the west. So, well, they're getting upset up north by the Yan, and now the rest of the, you know, the brunt of the alliance is coming in from another direction. This alliance was quickly able to do to the Qi what the past alliances had failed to do against the Qin. Quickly the Qi, who just a decade ago were competing for a hegemony of the ancient Chinese realm, were reduced to just two cities. And realizing that their king was, look, just in no way up to the task of leading the state, the royal court of the Qi captured King Min and killed him themselves. He had been such a disaster. They had lost so much land. I mean, they went from literally number one seed or maybe a number two seed 
to being down to two cities. The royal court had seen enough and killed him themselves, and they handed power over to King Xiang, who in turn tapped on a great general to retake the lost land. And look, while the Qi were, you know, quickly able to reclaim a lot of that lost land, they weren't able to get all of it. And even more shockingly, the Qi tires had already been slashed. Yeah, the land might be back, but the armies aren't. The structure isn't. Because just like that, the Qi were essentially done. I mean, they continue to exist, and they're still, you know, quote-unquote strong, but they are not even a shadow of what they used to be a decade ago. When I said King Min's horrible leadership burned down his own state, well, I wasn't kidding. All it takes is one incompetent leader and a few years to bring down the arguably most powerful state of the day. Now, if that doesn't show how high stakes this period was, look, I don't know what will. Rome bounces back from bad emperors who were more than incompetent. And even other dynasties before and after this bounce back from worse than incompetent leaders. But in the warring states, you are always one move from destruction. And that also highlights how close this first vertical alliance could have been in ruining the Qin because of their succession issues in 307 BC. Now the Qi are essentially out of the running. But if they're out, wait. Well, who's going to stop the Qin? And honestly, look, I'll be honest. I've said it before. But now, well, truly, no one can. King Zhao and the Qin rode this second horizontal alliance against the Qi as far as that road let them. But in 278 BC, it was time to act on this new massive geopolitical advantage. I mean, the Qin are almost the United States in 1994. The biggest threat to them is gone. It's just them now. And so with that, the Qin readied their armies, tapped on by Qi again, and set out to finally take out the Zhao. But like everything the Qin do, it was extremely well thought out. The big three after the Qi slipped up big time were obviously the Qin, the Zhao in the middle still holding in there, and again, the third was the pesky Chu state. And look, were the Chu really a big threat? No, they were not as much as the Zhao or the Qi were or had been, but they were still not one to be taken lightly. So in 278 BC, the Qin were going to essentially lock their back door should they ever choose to turn on the Zhao. We mentioned this a few episodes ago, but yeah, the Qin were finally going to use their Shu and Ba territories as a launching pad to push into the Chu state border and to, you know, just push it a little further east to shore up their own back door. I mean, if the entire Qin army goes north, the Chu, if, you know, steps weren't taken, could just march across themselves from the south. They were not going to let that happen. Within a year, the Qin forces, using their launch pad of the new Sichuan territories, had secured the city of Ying and had ripped a sizable chunk of the Chu state's western lands along the Han River right from them. And obviously, 
Maps for all of this will be available online for this episode's post. Now, after taking the legs out from the Chu state, while Bai Chi and the Qin were then able to finally turn towards the Jiao. Yet for the time being, that's all the Qin did. Turn towards the Jiao. Both states, the Jiao and the Qin, now realized that they were the last two mega powers. And obviously, they knew the stakes. So from 278 BC until 265 BC, both sides essentially, I imagine with my awful analogy brain, looked at each other like we look over the DMZ now. Both know one has to go. There is virtually no room for diplomatic amendments. But war with each other would be costly. No one's going to start it unless they really think they have a shot. And it would be costly, by the way, in literally every metric. And the Jawad had a little growth spurt in around the year 300. Now, it was nothing compared to that of the Chins, obviously, but they had essentially copied the nomadic horsemen in terms of cavalry. We haven't talked about the nomadic horsemen in a while to the north, but the Jawad essentially looked over and said, well, it'd be kind of nice to have that, wouldn't it? And now, if you've ever heard of the Huns, or the Mongolians, then yeah, you know that these steppe horsemen are about as good as it comes in terms of horsemen. And while the Zhao have their little growth spurt, the Qin were not done reforming. And their next round of philosophical and legalist steroids were about to set them up to do the truly unthinkable. Conquer everyone. Because in 269 BC, a man named Fan Sui became the chief administrator for the Qin. Okay, remember, the Qin are legalist, and it's an already brutal and ridiculously competitive system. But Fan Sui came in and turned that legalist knob up to 11. Being a strict legalist, it's no surprise to us that he advocated for authoritarian reforms left and right, but he also pushed to change the foreign policy aims of the Qin state. Instead of just taking land and then using it as a negotiating piece in a peace deal, you know, I'll take this amount of land and I'll give a lot of it back for a peace deal, sort of, you know, and that was the common practice of the day, Fan Sui instead instituted a policy of irrevocable expansion. The Qin were not going to give any land back. He wanted the Qin to take. But more importantly, he wanted the Qin to keep. But he wasn't just some bloodthirsty war hawk. No, he wasn't just saying, let's go invade everyone and take all of their land. Because he also, well, began to push for alliances with distant states to attack nearby states. And this ended up being the 23rd of the 36 stratagems. Essentially, he would get other states that were really far away to take casualties for them whenever possible. So let's say, you know, you have the Qin way to the west, maybe a far east state can come in the middle and, you know, take some of the enemy out. And they would use these allies to either remove their enemy entirely or they would at least substantially weaken them before the Qin got there to finish the job. 
However, it was his mindset on what to do when you actually started taking over land that really shocks me. Because Fan Sui is quoted as allegedly saying, quote, Attack not only the territory, but also the people, end quote. Now, what does that exactly mean? Well, it more or less solidified a policy of mass slaughter that became the way the Qin would operate. You weren't just going there to take land. You were going there to take out the people. And four years after Fan Sui took his post, the Qin, still under King Zhao since before 300 BC, decided to make the first move against the Zhao. But this is where, if you can, if you're not driving, I would ask you look at your map. The Yellow River runs along the Zhao and Qin border. But if it keeps going south until the Han State, there's a branch that shoots directly right into the heart of the Qin. And now the Qin know this, obviously. So they end up starting this attack on the Zhao by attacking the already essentially defeated Han and took that river branch. Same thing they did by taking out the Chu there for a hot second. They were going to make sure that all their doors were locked before they left the home. So after securing this river entrance, the Qin moved up through the Wei state towards the Zhao. Now, the Qin simply wanted to cut off the Han enclave of Shangdang just south of the Zhao state. The Han king, realizing that, look, this is not a war he's ever going to win, immediately agreed to surrender Shangdang over to the Qin. Look, just take it, please leave us alone. But it was never handed over because in another plot twist, the local governor of Shangdang instead turned around and gave Shangdang to the Zhao state. So nonetheless, the Zhao state tapped on a very wise general named Lian Po, who ended up fortifying his troops at Changpin, while the Qin on their end tapped on a general named Wang He. Lian Po, Po is in P.O., was essentially the Chinese version of Fabius, the delayer, who was the Roman dictator who realized that fighting out in the field against the Carthaginians was not advantageous. And Lian Po realized in open combat, well, he, he was probably a dead man. But if he stayed behind his massive fortifications, he could slowly, ever so slowly, even the odds. So well, for the next three years, the Zhao just stayed behind their fortifications, while the Qin army time and time again failed to break through. Another stalemate, and this one, again, for three years. But remember, this isn't modern warfare. Ancient warfare is filled with all of these short, yet utterly decisive moments. So Lian Po, general for the Zhao, is preventing that devastating one defeat from ever happening. It's not pretty, it's not glamorous, but it's probably his best bet to somehow beat the stronger Qin. But, well, the king of the Zhao state was an impatient man. While Lian Po had kept the Zhao State Army intact and alive for three years, albeit a very uneventful three years, another general 
had promised the king of the Zhao a decisive battle. And the king decided to swap Lian Pao out for this aggressive general. Remember, the Zhao's whole plan under this Lian Pao general was to stay behind their fortifications. We're going to wait until maybe someday the perfect opportunity strikes. They hadn't lost yet, but they hadn't won. But now the Qin are beginning to get wind of this. And realizing that a decisive moment was fast approaching, they decide to put in their best general. And probably to Fan Sui's favor, the Qin state's most brutal general. And who other than our friend Bai Qi. So before the eve of a decisive battle, Bai Qi was secretly put in charge of the Qin army. The new general for the Zhao marched his forces out of the fortifications to meet Bai Qi and the Qin. And now this battle, well, this is really why I wanted to do this whole podcast. I mean, whole podcast as in the history of China. Not this exact moment, not this exact battle, but the idea this moment and many others have. The year right now is 260 B.C., 44 years before Hannibal Barca had his world-renowned masterstroke at Cannae. Cannae is widely regarded as one of the most technically brilliant victories of all time. So the Battle of Cannae, real quickly, is when the much smaller Carthaginian force set itself up like a reverse crescent moon. So the front, you know, the middle of the army was most in the front, and the wings were in the back, sort of creating a semicircle. But as the Roman soldiers pushed into the middle, which was filled with pretty bad troops, it began to back up, and the crescent moon reversed. And slowly, as the Roman soldiers began to push forward, and as the middle of the Carthaginian line backed up, the side stayed the same. And eventually, the Romans had walked themselves into a full encirclement. And the battle ended up resulting in 67,000 Roman casualties. And this battle, it's in books. It's in endless TV documentaries. And it's in classrooms everywhere. But 44 years before Cannae, Bai Qi of the Qin State did the exact same thing. He had his center fall back while his side stay put, baiting the Zhao army deeper and deeper until they were fully surrounded. But this is where it's almost crazier than Cannae. Look, Cannae happened over the course of one day, and that's brutal. But the brutaler Bai Qi held the encirclement for 46 days. 46 days. It's almost like the Soviets holding the noose in Stalingrad. The starving and beleaguered Zhao troops 46 days later, like the Germans at Stalingrad, eventually surrendered. But Fan Sui, that legalist reformer, had changed the policy, and Bai Qi was probably more than happy with this. So with the new precedent, it is said that Bai Qi killed every single Zhao prisoner. The battle was over. The king of the Zhao's impatience was paid for, with 400,000 men dead. And while this maybe probably is an inflated number, it's an ancient source after all, but even 50% of that number is still nearly four times deadlier than Cannae. 
Same battle plan. And this happened first. But 400,000 men dead? Heck, give them 200,000. It's still crazier. Ancient China is just operating in a higher league. And yet in the West, this is all alien information to us. Changpin is just another name. But General Bai Qi, by the end of his career, was allegedly responsible for 890,000 enemy deaths over his career. He makes Hannibal Barca seem like a pacifist. But after the battle, the Qin were tired themselves. Three years of stalemate followed by this big, brutal battle, so they did not immediately march on the Zhao capital. Eventually, though, the Qin got around to it, and they sent a single army to take the capital. However, another plot twist. This Qin army was struck from behind by what remained of the Zhao and any other alliance forces, and the Qin were forced to abandon the siege of the capital. The Zhao remained alive. But they were the last state that could have resisted the Qin on their own. But now, after the defeat at Changpin, well, they couldn't. No one now could stop the Qin alone. All the other states would have to join forces to even have a chance. But humans are selfish and irrational, and no alliance would ever show up. So with no real threat at the moment, the Qin went and did what probably should and could have been done hundreds of years ago. The Qin army invaded the Zhou dynasty's land. In 256 BC, King Zhao, who is, by the way, now nearly 50 years into his reign. I told you he would reign for a long time. But nonetheless, nearly 50 years into his reign, King Zhao took the western half of the Zhou dynasty's imperial land. It's not big, but they're finally getting around to doing it. But in 251 BC, after one of the longest reigns in Chinese history, King Zhao of the Qin state died. He had ruled for so long that when they crowned his son, per the usual, he himself was an old man and died himself allegedly three days after being crowned. I mean, he had waited for his dad to die and maybe I would become king, and by the time he became king, he himself was an old man. So then it was his son, King Zhao's grandson, that took the reins. And his name was King Zhuangxiang. Now, King Zhuangxiang got up and finished the job and conquered the eastern half of the Zhou lands seven years after the western lands fell. So just like that, officially, the Zhou dynasty ended. It was technically the longest dynasty that would ever exist in China, spanning over 800 years. But now, it was gone. And not with a bang, but with a whimper. But the new king of the Qin, King Zhuangxiang, like his father before him, 
was not long for this world as a king. And in 247 BC, just three years into his own reign, he died. So King Zhao died, King Zhao's son died, King Zhao's grandson died. Thus, that meant that King Zhuangxiang's 13-year-old son, the great-grandson of King Zhao, was to be crowned. Two elderly kings, and then a mere kid. The child king was coronated in 247 BC, and he would be called King Zheng. But the young King Zheng would go by a different name because he would go by later as Qin Shi Huangdi, the first emperor of China. Next week, Qin Shi Huangdi, the founder of the first imperial dynasty, the Qin Dynasty. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to follow the show on all the platforms and on Twitter, and check out the website. Thank you so much, and I'll see you all next week on the history of China.